Now, uh, we are in a series, we're actually in the second week of a series that, we're, uh, that we've called What's Inside Us, and we're talking about sin. And I was thinking one of the reasons that we have trouble talking about sin and evil, even though we really need to, and we really do, but we, we struggle with it as a society. One of the reasons we have trouble is because you know and I know that there are things in our past that we feel vaguely guilty for. How many of you are right there? You know exactly what I mean. We feel shame. We feel regret. We don't want to look at that. Or there are things that people are doing to us or there are things that people are doing out in the world that we feel moral outrage toward. Anybody ever have that feeling? We sense that there is something wrong out there but we don't really have a language for it. Now, I want to say to you today, this could be your first time here, and you've never heard this before, but I want to say to you, the Bible gives us a far richer vocabulary for what's going on inside us, a vocabulary for sin, than anything in society. The scripture really helps you to understand what is it that happens inside the human person and therefore in a culture and therefore in a society and therefore in our politicking that, that makes things so off because we all know something just isn't quite right. How many of you know that? Most of society doesn't have that definition and I'm telling you the scriptural definition is so nuanced. If you study the Bible, it is so rich what did we see two weeks ago, if you remember? We saw two weeks ago that sin is really a matter of reducing God. And when you reduce God, the result of that is a smallness in your own spirit. You're no longer great. In fact, sin doesn't just make you bad, it makes you boring. And it reduces God so much in your life that you go through life and your life really is to no effect at all. And by the way, that's exactly where the devil wants you. That your life is of no effect at all. Now this week, we're going to see not how sin reduces God, but we're going to see how sin replaces God. And the result is not a smallness of spirit, but sin replaces God and the result is an addiction of our spirit. You see that? It's an addiction. So pa Pastor Ben, he read to you from Jeremiah chapter 2. And now Jeremiah is written to a nation in spiritual decline. And what we see here is that Jeremiah is really telling us about three things, and they're the three things that I'm gonna cover. He's talking to us about the nature of spiritual attraction and why it's there. Then he talks to us about the nature of spiritual addiction. And then I'm gonna close today talking to you about the nature of spiritual restoration and how God will deliver us from it if we can get through it. So, you guys see the three things. There's attraction, there's addiction, and then there's restoration. So are you ready? Now I ask that online, are you ready? And I want you to you know, email somebody if you are and say today's gonna be God's day because guys, listen to me. God wants to speak to you about this. All of you are dealing with some sort of addictive behavior cycle that you can't seem to get control of. Some of you are thinking right now, how does he know that about me? I know that about you because I'm one of you. Because I face those cycles too. Because we're all human beings. And what's interesting about the Bible, all through the Bible, is it uses this, this remarkable sexual imagery. In fact, one of these verses is very, very interesting. At verse four, 
we're told, you'll see it here on the screen, it says, we're told that God is calling them to task for the fact that they're turning to idols. And he says, you're not worshiping me. They didn't ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the wilderness? And then, now that's verses four through seven, and then you back up into verses one through three, and he uses this incredible sexual imagery of a young married couple. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not yet sown. Of course, that's talking about virginity. And then they begin to talk about the first fruits. And we're going to get back to the sexual language. But I got to say that the Bible is filled with this. But here's the picture God's setting. There are two people and they are hopelessly in love. How many of you have been there? How many of you there right now? If you're sitting next to your spouse and you're not raising your hand, shame on you. (laughs) Boy, you're in trouble after Pastor Kevin will be providing counseling after the service. No. And then, these two people are hopelessly in love, and then in verse 20, it starts this way. you got to see this. This is unbelievable. It says, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel, running here and there, a wild donkey, accustomed. Now, when you read this, we all understand. Of course, we say, we know that's idol worship. He's talking about idol worship. Because why? Because we know that on every high hill at this time, there were altars to a god named Baal. And we also know that under every spreading tree, there were altars to a God named Baal. By the way, when you go to Israel uh, with us, you're going to see lots of these altars that were, that were put up. But there are these altars to Baal. Why? Listen. High hills were a sign of transcendence. So you built an altar on a high hill. Spreading trees were a sign of, guess what? Fertility. And so you'd build an altar under a spreading tree. And so verse 20, listen, this is how the sentence starts. You got to get this. It says, the sentence starts like this. On every high hill and under every what? Spreading tree. And you figure the sentence is going to end with you worshiped idols. But that's not what it says. What it says is, and I want to read this to you from the Hebrew. Are you ready? It says, on every high hill... And under every spreading tree, you are spreading your legs. Now that is literally what the Hebrew says. And that may shock some of you. I don't know what version in English that you have out there. But I can tell you one thing. Whether you read the ESV or the NLT or you read, you know, the Revised Standard Version. There is no English translation that is going to tell you that. Do you know why? Because the scholars that you trust to translate into English from the original language thinks that you're too sensitive to hear that. They think that you won't be able to take it. We're just too sensitive. But the problem is, is that you're not hearing exactly what God is actually saying. What God is trying to tell us. That it literally says in the Hebrew, when God says, you worship idols, when you worship other things other than God, he says, on the top of every mountain and under every tree, you are spreading your legs. Now, here's my question. Why would God use such imagery? Do you think God just wants to get your attention? 
Do you think that God's just in it for shock value? I don't think so. I think it's teaching value. Because all through the Bible, when God talks about worshiping anything else, any worship, he uses this sexual imagery. Why? Write this down. Here's what he's saying. you got to get this about the dynamics of spiritual attraction. He's saying there is an attraction that's going on in every human person, and it's at the spiritual level. Write that down. You have attractions going on in your life right now that's at the spiritual level. And it's every bit as powerful as the sexual attraction is on the physical level. In other words, what I'm saying is that right now there is going on in your soul, in the deepest recesses of your soul, you are lying down with something spiritually. You are putting your arms into the arms of something. And your soul is having a relationship with that thing. Now, guys, listen. The physical relationship, or even the sexual one at that, I mean, for a minute, just think about physical attraction. How many of you agree that physical attraction can be pretty overwhelming? Come on. I'm not seeing enough hands. Are you serious? None of you have been tempted? Am I the only idiot up here that has been tempted in this way? No, it can be pretty overwhelming. In fact, I would venture a guess that if you were honest with me today, the most embarrassing moments of your life were those moments when you were just so overwhelmed that you kept putting the pressure on or you kept trying to make something happen. It's a physical attraction. And what does it do? It overrides common sense. How many of you remember those days? Most of you. And I'm going to say only you know, and I know you're shy today. But I'd ask this question, what makes physical attraction so strong? Well, I'm not going to answer that. You know what I think we should do? Let's turn to the biologists, because the biologists have an answer to this question. And this is what Jeremiah does. It's interesting. Jeremiah, what he says is, you know what your problem is? He says, your problem is you're all animals. That's what he says. He likens us to an animal. Not just the men, ladies. He says, you're all animals. Notice, he says... You are a swift she-camel running here and there. You are a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving of her heat. Who can restrain her? That's not a flattering picture, is it? The Bible says we're all like animals. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. As in mating, he will find her. Now, here's what the biologists are going to tell you. Why is physical attraction so important? Why do you think it's so important that we have such strong physical attraction? I'll tell you what the biologists are going to say. Biologists are going to say, because we're dead unless, unless we have a strong physical attraction. Why? Because you can't reproduce yourself. That's what the biologist is going to say. There is something in the male, come on, that, uh, let's talk the birds and the bees here. If nobody's ever talked to you about this, let me talk to you about this. It, this was a great day to bring your children if you're a coward, so... You can tell them for the next service. There is something in the male that only the male produces that has to get together with something in the female that only the female produces. And unless those things get together, guess what? Your race is over. Your species is over. You're over. So why does God use this powerful sexual imagery? I mean, is, it about, is God concerned about sexual ethics here? I don't think so. 
I think God is talking about religion. And he's talking about the imagery of the soul. And God is saying as powerfully as he can that you and I would understand it. That listen to me, your soul is like two empty arms. Your soul is an empty heart and you must run after things in order to fill it. God made you that way. And here's what God is saying. Write this down. He says, if you're not in my arms, he says, then you will be, the arm, you will be in the arms of something else. If you haven't written that down, you write that down. That's what he's saying. That there is deep in your soul a spiritual desire that's even more powerful than a sexual or physical attraction. Listen to me, guys. This is the dynamic of spiritual attraction. You can't produce meaning in your own life. Do you know that? You can't produce your own worth. You can't produce your own security. You are completely unable to do that. Understand, everybody has to have meaning in life or else your life is going to be empty. You'll feel depressed. You'll feel down. You'll take your life. Everybody has to have some sense of self-worth or else you'll feel worthless. Everybody has to have some security or else you're not going to be able to face life. But God says you cannot produce what gives you those feelings on your own. You have to go after something to get it. You can't produce that on your own any more than you can produce your own species on your own. You can't just look at yourself as what I'm saying. Listen to me. You can't just look at your life in spite of what culture tells you today and say, look, all that matters is that I like me. That's, you know, that's common thought today. I just have to like myself. No, you can't. it is impossible for you to do that any more than you can reproduce yourself sexually. You'll never get your worth from repeating, I like myself, I like myself. You will always measure it against something you are running after, something you're doing, a relationship that you have. You are always going to measure your self-worth by the things you choose to do in life. You'll never get happiness any other way. There has to be something that is the source of your meaning. There has to be something that is the source of your worth. There has to be something that is the source of your security. Listen to me, right now, you are in some pursuit, you are in some relationship, there's some goal, some condition, some practice, it's something. If I could just drive this home. You are as powerless to produce in your own heart that meaning as, as, as a man can decide that he's just going to have kids on his own. And so God says, it's because of that, that if you don't come to me spiritually, you will go to something else. So here's the question. Whose meaning is the source of your meaning? Who do you go to for your worth? Because I'm telling you, if you're not in bed with God, you're in bed with somebody else. Which leads to the dynamics of spiritual addiction. So write this down. You ready? The dynamics of spiritual addiction. And actually, before I have you write it down, let's just take a minute. Because I got to show you. Do, do you know how, by the way, do you know how hard it is for me to not stand up right now? <laughs> I, I got to say, this is like, I'm killing myself here. But before we move on, can I just show you how radically different our, the Christian view of the soul is and the spirit is than anything in culture today. For example, go to Barnes & Noble today and go look inside all the shelves. we got a picture of a Barnes & Noble. It's huge. And you're going to actually find tons of books on the soul. 
But what you're going to see are books like this, Enlighten Your Soul, or you're going to read books like Inspirations for the Soul, or Know Your Soul, or Chicken Soup for the Soul. And I'm going to tell you something. What's funny about all these soul books is they're all the same. What they say is they say that your soul is like a pond. And you should care for it. And the cure for the soul is time of reflection and soul care. And they talk about getting into quiet places and have inspirational calendars and think inspirational thoughts. Chicken soup for the soul. Reflection, be quiet. And I'm telling you right now, that's not the biblical view of the soul. No. The biblical view of the soul is the soul is a turbulent thing that is so much more robust, that is so much more vital. It's not a compound, it is alive. The Bible depicts your soul as a restless, turbulent ocean. And that you are violently searching for something. Now listen to me, anybody that's ever gotten addicted to anything knows what I'm talking about. You are violently searching for something. Your soul isn't tame. It's so dumb. Your soul doesn't need to be petted. Your soul does need love. Your soul needs rapture. Your soul needs passion. And God is saying, if you're not getting your passion in my arms, if you're not in bed with me, you're gonna crawl into bed with something else. And usually what happens is, whatever you crawl into bed with, you form an addiction cycle too. Now let me show you how that cycle runs. This is how it works. Now you can write this down. Ready? Here's how the addiction cycle works. Number one, something in your life gets promoted higher than it should be. Write that down. That's the first thing that begins to happen is gradually, and by the way, I, this usually doesn't happen, obviously. It usually happens gradually over time. You make a choice. Have you ever heard this? Listen, a choice gives birth to a habit a habit gives birth to a lifestyle, and a lifestyle gives birth to a destiny. Let me say that again. A choice gives birth to a habit. A habit gives birth to your lifestyle. Your lifestyle shapes your destiny. Now, usually what happens, nobody wakes up one morning and says, <laughs> today I want to do something really evil. Do you know anybody that ever says that? <laughs> nobody says that. But what happens is, you and I make small choices that give birth to habits. And through those choices, over time gradually, maybe even we choose not to see it, but something gets promoted to higher than it should be in our life. Now this happens to people all the time. It happens in relationships. If you've ever been in a relationship where you've looked at somebody and you've said, baby, what, what good am I without you? I need you, you're my life. I'm gonna tell you that person has got too high of a position in your life. If you say to somebody, you complete me, you should be saying that to Jesus Christ. If you say to somebody, you're my life and I can't live without you, then you don't have much of a life. Watch out for that. Or for some of us, if you look at something and you say, I can't get by without this thing. I need it to feel better. I need it to do better. You need it to get you by. You need it to keep you level. <laughs> you need it as emotional support. What you're doing is you're getting into bed with something else and you're promoting it to the place of God. And you're saying, this is easier. And I'm telling you something, it's easier than going to God sometimes. And that's why you do it. 
But you know what it's like? It's like fast food. Going to McDonald's is a whole lot easier than cooking. But I gotta tell you, if I go to McDonald's, I'm getting up for this, you will see over time how that just begins to... (laughs) Now that's what happens to your spiritual life. Because you cheapen it. And you're getting fast food when God says, you need to be coming to me. You're saying to something, even, it could be something good, but you're saying to that good thing, you're my God. You're my savior. You're my father. You're my maker. Notice, Jeremiah, let's go on. He says, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. Now that's the first step. You take something good, wood, stone, God created it, it's good, but you make it sin because you promote it too high. You are my father. Without you, I'd be nothing. Then here's the second step. Here's what happens. This is the addiction cycle. You get repetitively drawn to that same thing over and over again. In order to have peace, in order to have your identity, and it leads to an addiction. And guys, I I just gotta say to you right now, I mean, listen to me, everybody here, everybody online, I come from a family of addicts. I have relatives that have killed themselves and are dead today. I have relatives that have lived their entire lives addicted to drugs and alcohol to this day. I wish I I didn't have such violent death in my background in my family, but I do. My side of the family, frankly, has so few people living that I really didn't have to bury my dad. It was kind of like me and I have one brother and we could choose because there's nobody around anymore. And because I come from a family of addicts, I know what it's like to be addicted to stuff. I can get addicted to anything. My wife will tell you. People have walked up to her and said, oh man, it must be nice to be married to somebody who's so level. She's like, you have no idea. So just to be clear, I mean, my wife was punished. You guys don't have to live with it. But it leads to an addiction. And by the way, addiction, this is why Jeremiah uses this language. Notice he says this. He says, do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. Well, that's what addiction looks like. Your feet are bare. It means, look at what, look what it costs you. You run to that thing over and over so much so that your feet are bare. Your throat is dry. You just don't care. You have to have it. In spite of what it's doing to your family. In spite of what it's done to the trust in your marriage. In spite of what it's done to damage your children. There's no repentance. There's just a need to have and to have. You're dying of thirst, but don't you see you're dying of thirst because you're in bed with something else? You're in bed with something that promises so much but can only give you so much. And it'll never satisfy you. And addiction is a terrible thing. And what happens is, write this down. Here's the third step. You find that you must have it. You have to have it. Jeremiah, he goes on, he says, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. Now that word must is everything. Let me be really blunt here, guys. Guys, can I, can I just speak straight to you as if I haven't already? <laughs> For example, if you build your life around your spouse, even though your spouse is wonderful, 
If you build your life around your married partner and she builds her life around you, you know, you're a man. One of you is going to go and see the inside of a coffin someday. And here's what God is saying. When that day comes, where then will be the gods you've made for yourself? If you build your life on her, how can she possibly save you in your greatest moment of need? And I'm telling you, she can't. And there's no thing that can satisfy that. So how do we avoid it? Ready? How do we avoid it? About seven minutes, I'm going to give you this. You ready? How do we avoid it? Let's talk about the dynamics of spiritual restoration. Here we go. Here's the first thing I'd say. How do you avoid this addiction cycle? that keeps you spiritually addicted and dependent? Number one, write this down. You've got to start asking yourself the right questions. You've got to start getting honest with yourself and looking at yourself and getting self-reflective and asking the right questions. And here's what I want you to ask. You can write this question down. I really want you to ask yourself honestly, what is functioning right now as more of my real savior than Jesus Christ? It could be the bottle. It could be narcotics. It could be another relationship that you have to have. It could be money. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're here and you know the biblical principles of generosity and giving and tithes, but you refuse to do it, I'm telling you God is your money. That's to what you look to for security, and that's why you won't give it up. And God says you're not guilty of being stingy. You're guilty of idolatry. That's why Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon at the same time. Why am I speaking to that? Because the three most potent things in life that will keep you from God are money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and influence. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. It has never changed. Do you know why I can read your mail? Do, I, do you know why I know what you go through? Because it's nothing new. People say, oh, pastor, you don't know my situation is so unique. No, it isn't. I've got news for you. You're not special. You're just like the rest of us. And we all struggle with this stuff. And we all have to do the same things to get over it. And we're better when we do it together. That's the power of the church. Now, first thing you've got to do is start asking yourself the right questions. Second thing you've got to do, write this down, is you've got to personalize your view of sin. This is a whole series on sin. And I, I just encourage every person that is, that is listening to this or watching this that they begin to Think about what I mean by this. Personalize your view of sin. Listen, when you live for anything more than God, do you know that you break his heart? God says, notice, it was the last scripture of this section, Ben read. He says, yet my people have what? Forgotten me. It's heartbreaking. Yet my people have forgotten me for days without a number. You know why? Jeremiah uses romantic language because we are doing to God only far worse what people have done when they walk out on their spouses. You're not just breaking his law. You're breaking his heart. Don't you see that? And yet the things that we do, we entertain ourselves with things that put Jesus on the cross. 
you've got to personalize your view of sin and realize, man, this breaks, this breaks my Lord's heart. I don't want to hurt him. So just write that down. Remember whose heart you're breaking. Just write that down. Whenever you don't put him in the center, why? Because he's put you in the center of his heart. He's bound up with us in his heart. He's made himself vulnerable to us in his heart. He's given you his heart. Personalize it. Remember whose heart you're breaking. Then the next one, this is so important. Write this down. I've got a few more minutes left. Write this down. You've got to remember grace. Write that down. Remember grace. Say, what do you mean? Well, this is where I'd go back to verses five and six, if you remember. Verse five says, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they've strayed so far from me? And notice how he answers the question. It says, they followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. By the way, that's what sin does. You're following something worthless, it makes you worthless. It reduces God, it reduces you. Do you see? This is how sin works. And he says, they followed worthless idols and they became worthless, but notice how. How did that happen? It goes on and it says, notice, they did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through the land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. The reason they got into idolatry is because they had forgotten the source of their salvation. You know, for my daily reflection times with the Lord, my time in scripture, I have a playlist. I've shared it with you for years. You know what I call the playlist on Spotify? It's got 22 hours worth of worship songs. I call the playlist Remember because that's what it's there for. It's to remind me and help me to remember the goodness of God and the deliverance of God you say, Pastor, why should I spend daily time with God? Because you need to remind yourself. Some of you have forgotten. You might barely wake yourself up by coming to church, but daily you forget. And then you wonder why you are the way you are at work. You wonder why your marriage is struggling. You wonder why you're not the parent you wish you were. Start your days with Jesus and remember him. And see if that doesn't begin to make a difference that you're walking in the spirit of God and living in the spirit of God. See, they're constantly saying, let us remember what God has done for me. How do you deal with your other lover gods? Write this down. You've got to make spiritually real what Jesus has done for you. You've got to make it real. That takes effort. You daily put into it. You know, there's a place in the Lord of the Rings, my favorite novel, by the way. How many of you have ever read Lord of the Rings? How many of you have seen the movies? There you go, lots of you. There's this place in the books, great books, where a hobbit, where a hobbit by the name of Pippin is standing at the gate of the city and in comes this great witch king and he comes through the gate and he's about to destroy the city and all of a sudden, off in the distance, you hear these horns, and, and there's just giant horns go off, and they're the horns of Calvary. Basically, if you know the story, they are the riders of, do you know? Rohan. And they're on horseback, and the riders of Rohan have come, and even though the king of Rohan rides to his death that day, the city is saved, and what we're told is, 
for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance without bursting into tears. Why? Because every time he heard a horn in the distance, it reawakened the memory of his own salvation. The memory of one who died for him. That he needed. I'm going to ask you right now, what are your distant horns? What are those intentional things that you've put in your life to remind you of grace? What God's done for you? See, you need to intentionally find ways of making Jesus spiritually real to you. You can't be passive. You've got to be active. Don't you see? Verse 5 happened because verse 6 didn't happen. They didn't ask, where's the Lord? He says, what fault did your fathers find in me? Why did they stray so far from me? Why have they become worthless? Because they forgot to ask. Where's the Lord? And then let me give you this one. Ready? This is the most important one I'm going to give you today. Uh, they've all been important, but this one's really important. Write this down. You got you to gotta look in the mirror. You got to look in the mirror. Now you say why. Because verse 32 is an amazing verse. Now listen. Guys, look in the mirror, but then look up at me for just a minute. This, this is incredible because Jeremiah, those of you watching online, listen. Jeremiah couldn't possibly have known what we know today about it. Look, because here's what it says, and I'll let you look at it. It says, let's read it together. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now, brides, all the brides here, I'd like to ask you, what is the function of a wedding dress? The function of a wedding dress is because on your wedding day, how do you want to look? Perfecto. Is that right? On your wedding, I've never met a bride that doesn't. On your wedding day, you want to be just the right size. You're not the right size, but by your wedding day, you want to be the right size. Come on, can I get a witness? <laughs> on your wedding day, you want to be flawless. You're not flawless, but how many of you really want to be? You do everything, and so what do you put on? <laughs> wedding ornaments. You put on wedding dresses. And, and what else do you put on? You put on the makeup. Now, I'm going to tell you something, guys. Here's the reality. There has never been, in all of history, there has never been a perfect bride. But, you know, as far as she's concerned that day, how much work she's put in, it's also true that there's never been an imperfect bride. But here's something I've always seen. This is what I want to get to. I have done weddings for 30 years. And do you know, in all my years of doing weddings, I've never seen a bride get to the top of the aisle and say, hey, I forgot to put on my makeup. Isn't that weird that I've never seen that? Oh, it's not weird? I have never stood up and had a bride say to me, oh, I forgot to put on my makeup. I forgot to put on my jewelry. And then the guests are like, oh, you're right, you did. You look so terrible, you know. No, it's never happened. Do you know why that's never happened? Because you can be sure the bride is always looking in the mirror. On the day of her wedding day, the bride is always looking in the mirror. Brides, you are obsessed with yourselves on your wedding day. 
Can you imagine a bride that got to the top of the aisle and wasn't looking in the mirror? Does that happen? What is Jeremiah saying here? Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments, yet my people have forgotten me? What he's saying is, you know what your problem is, human being? You don't look in the mirror enough. You don't look at your real condition enough. And you put no effort into your groom to be the person that I've called you to be, to do the things that I've called you to do. But you know what Jesus promises? Jesus promises. He says, if you will start looking in the mirror, I will make you spiritually perfect and beautiful. Guys, God looks at you. Come on, listen to me. I just got to stand up for a minute. What is the reason why you're working so hard all the time? What is the reason why you want your children to be so perfect in front of everybody? What is the reason why you want somebody to love you and and make you feel good and perfect? The reason you work so hard in your career all the time to cover yourself or make yourself look so good. What's going on? Don't you see they're just ornaments? They're ornaments. And you're trying to make yourself acceptable to God. You're trying to make yourself spiritually beautiful. You're trying to make yourself spiritually acceptable. But God actually comes so far as he says, listen, I'm not just going to give you ornaments. I'm not just going to give you something that makes you spiritually acceptable. God says, I'm going to be that thing for you. And Jeremiah couldn't have understood this, what we know. Jesus Christ did not come just to make you forgiven. Jesus Christ came. We're told in Ephesians 5, look at this. This is amazing. Look at what it says. Jesus Christ came to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless, a bride. Jesus Christ came to make you perfect. Now, Remember, on the day that Jesus was getting baptized, what did John the Baptist say to him? He said, oh man, you shouldn't, I can't baptize you. You you should baptize me. What does Jesus say? He says, I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Question. All righteousness for who? Jesus is already perfect. So who's he saying he has to fulfill all righteousness for? you and he lived a perfect life for you so that when we believe in him his beautiful record is put onto us do you know the reason why people go after lover gods is that we're trying to convince ourselves we're beautiful and God just says if you just look at the mirror and remember what I've done if you would just see what I willingly did for you if you understand how beautiful I've made you you would be free from all these lover gods Does that sound good to you? Let me pray with you. Father, I pray with every person here. Father, just help us to repent. Let there be a spirit of repentance that, Father, we have gotten into bed with other things. And help us to get over these Addictions, these cycles that we trap ourselves in 
when we go after lesser things more than you. Father, make us holy as you are holy. Stir our affection for you that we'd love you more than all that other garbage. We want to receive you as Savior and as Lord. Make yourself real. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said...